You, you can holler, you can applaud, you can scream, you can do anything you want. I can't hear you anyway. <laughs> This is Kyler Bingham, and you're listening to the Salt Lake Dirt Podcast. Today, my guest is Chip Jacobs. Uh, his newest book is Arroyo, and it's a, a novel that takes place in Pasadena. We'll talk about that shortly. He's also, he's from a journalism background, so two of his books, Smog Town and The People's Republic of Chemicals. Um, I might add, all three of these books are bestsellers, with uh, the most recent one being um, near the top of the L.A. LA bestselling, LA Times bestselling, right? Yes. Uh, yeah. So Chip, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, I'm very happy to be here and talking to somebody in Utah and literature <laughs> and, you know, a teacher, you know, and a smart guy. So thanks. For oh, thanks. Me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, we were just talking about the, the pandemic and I, the authors that I've been talking to since March, um, it's been pretty interesting. So we've talked about how has the pandemic um, impacted your writing, if any. I've talked to some writers who they've, you know, a couple of people have written that I've talked to have written a whole new book. Yep. Uh, they're on the second draft or, or better. And other people, they've just completely hit a standstill, hit a brick wall and are not able to create during this time. So I'm just curious uh, how you've been proceeding through these past eight months or so. You know, I'm, uh, it's almost like that Twilight Zone episode, original Twilight Zone, where uh, a man goes into a bunker and thinks he's well, and then he comes out and it's just <laughs> nothing but smoking ruins and a, you know, gray, a gray horizon. I feel like that's a bit, I mean, uh, writing, you know, as opposed to journalism, which is a very collaborative, extroverted pursuit, being a book writer, it's a very solitary deal. And, you know, I mean, it's not that much different for me, except I'm now have I am having trouble figuring out what the weekend is versus Monday, and you know um, those types of things. You know, just temporal. But it's really not that change. If I'm not writing and staying busy, that's where I get anxious and depressed. But if I'm writing, my mind is going somewhere else, and you know I'm scribbling and seeing progress. That's really all it takes to make me happy. That my dog and my guitar. That's yeah, I can relate to that big time. I, I just uh I have three dogs and I know your dogs I take are at, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um but they are like yeah, I mean I mean dogs I honestly I think they've I've mentioned this before to other people, but I think my dogs have saved me <laughs> during this time. No doubt. Um, and so I I bet you can relate because you have a you just got a newer one, right? A German Shepherd, is that right? Yeah, the dog that inspired the dog in Arroyo passed on right before just literally right before the pandemic really crushed us uh -huh. so we did get a german shepherd I've, I've never had a german shepherd he's half she's half german shepherd and she's she's actually you know a combination of intelligence ferocity love and also just cowardice she's kind of a perfect <laughs> dog you know and so when i take her for a walk she doesn't see people out there she's not encountering other of her species and right. when she sees something she got, she gets tense and worried and the hair on her back goes up, it's actually sad. I mean, I feel like my dog is experiencing the pandemic on an emotional level that I'm not, you know? But that dog being in a household with three other very, you know, opinionated people, that dog is like our, you know, our safe zone. Yeah. You know, every, we all know we love the dog, but we're not sure we all love each other. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to have that, yeah, that consistency with a dog. I mean, it, it's such a, but I, no, I, I was, um, before the pandemic, I'd take my dogs to certain dog parks and up, up in the mountains where there's a lot of trails. Yeah. And um, we're not really doing that right now, but I, I do notice when I've taken them out, they, they kind of bristle, especially my, my little one is just terrified where yeah. she, she'd been doing pretty good with that um before but now like her anxiety has stepped up and um yeah it's it's interesting how it, it definitely i mean i think they can sense they're probably thrilled that we're home all the time but they could sense something is different something's off you know they pick up on your energy for sure totally so even, yeah. you know, even if you're trying to be upbeat that dog still kind of knows there's something going on with my human yeah you know? oh totally yeah uh, yeah i mean 
Nobody ever talks about pandemic relief for dogs. Do you notice that? Nobody <laughs> is ever caring about their emotional well-being. We should, I don't we think should. it's right. It's, I, yeah, we, we should write a book about that. I like that. <laughs> I'm, just re yeah. <laughs> I'm reading a book, um, or I'm listening to a book right now called Dog is Love. Huh. Uh, I recommend it. It's, it's been pretty interesting just about how um, that's basically, you know, the concept. And I think he's a neuroscientist, I forget, but he, uh, just how they have that, like, innate, ability to love unconditionally you know it is and so it's been an interesting book because it's like a scientifically based yeah. uh studies and different things uh it's been it's been a good read i feel like dogs are have been domesticated and also programmed by our creator to love man whereas a cat to me <laughs> cat is like if if you could associate a cat with a country a cat would be france you know? <laughs> that would be uh have a beret and a galloy cigarette, <laughs> you know, reading something super existential, Nietzsche, and the cat is only, you know, cares about you feeding it and the occasional love, but the cat doesn't really, you know, the, 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 the cat's interests are outside of you. The cat so doesn't, yeah. <laughs> the cat doesn't need you, but you need the cat, right? Yeah, <laughs> the cat is very disdainful and, you know, it's not really sure, you know, what, you know, it's not really sure it's, it's okay with Americans, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so now it's alienated all millions of people. So yeah, well, <laughs> they'll have to deal with that. Um, I did. So just before we jumped on, I grabbed a book, and maybe you could talk about this. So sure. I I noticed a while back you you posted a picture of your your grandfather. Yes. Uh, and he was involved with Columbia Studios. Yep. Okay. Um, so you yeah you come from a show business background, so I'm I'm kind of curious. Sure. Um, you know about that and just growing up in Los Angeles and um, how that has impacted your, your interests and where you've, you know, sure. chosen your, your different writing styles. I, um, yeah, you know, I, uh, when I was a kid, I, my mom used to always call me into like the, the back part of the house and she would just tell me these ludic seemingly ludicrous things. Oh, Chip, you have a lot of Hollywood brethren in your family. Oh, Chip, I had my father's ghost visit me. Oh, Chip, there was a murder of your great, of, of my uncle, you know, that you'll learn about. And it's like, oh my God, mom, wow. really? I, I have no idea. Although I did get interested when I heard of the word murder. Yeah. You know, at seven years old, what's murder? You know, but <laughs> yeah, so my mom's, my mom's father was a uh, musician who started in New York City, um, like in the 1920s. And he worked, uh, he sort of got his chops um, in the Nickelodeons you know, where, which was kind of very primitive movie showing uh, using these devices that were, you know, were the first beginning movie projectors shooting images on walls. Um, eventually he left there once he kind of developed, nurtured his ability and uh, worked in something called Tin Pan Alley, which was a songwriting, you know, district of New York. And, um, then Hollywood started blooming and they wanted people from that world of New York songwriting and movie making to move west. And my grandfather did. He hopped on a train with my grandmother and my mom, who was a baby, and you know, first went to mid-city Los Angeles, and then moved out next to Pasadena in Sierra Madre. And um, you know, when um, you look on the internet movie database, which is is like the Bible of the movie industry. My grandfather worked on over 900 projects. Wow. Some of these were just short features in like 20, 30 minutes. Others were part of series. And um, he was a uh, kind of a stout, cigar-smoking, somewhat tempestuous personality. I, I, he died long before I was born. Can't wait to meet him. And, um, you know, uh, he really made a name for himself. Meanwhile, my mother's... Uh, uncle was a um, named Nat Ross. Um, um, uh, you know, hit her mom's little brother uh, moved out west from New York as well as kind of a wonder kind. And he was uh, working right there at Universal uh, Pictures and before the Universal Studios with Carl Lemley and Irving mm. Thalberg. And he at first was going to be an executive, and then he says, No, I want to make movies. And so he did quite a few well-known movies uh, in the 20s and 30s. Later, 
as I found out writing the book about my family who was murdered uh, while my wow. uncle lay in traction at the main hospital. And, um, you know, he, he worked Clara Bow. He discovered actresses. You know, he was there at the dawn of the industry. And, and they were too, you know, you go on IMDb and you see them and it's like, I can't believe, you know, I'm associated with them. I'm working to develop one of my books into a series. And uh, just to see my little name on there gives me such exhilaration because I feel like I'm nothing compared to their achievements. Yeah. But it's, uh, I do feel it. And, I, and it took me a long time to realize, you know, I was a writer in a, in a reporter's body. You know, I should have been doing creative writing all along because that really flowed through my genes. Uh -huh. And um, yeah, so, I mean, there's others that have, you know, been in Broadway, vaudeville, um, stage. But, you know, my, my uh, grandfather, Lee Zoller, and my great uncle, Nat Ross, you know, were pretty well-known Hollywood people. And they had interesting lives. And, you know, my grandfather did not want his kids or anybody working in Hollywood. He got very cynical about Hollywood. Huh. And, um, you know, the casting couch politics and those types of things. And lo and behold, of course, the, the guy I write the book about, my uncle, breaks his neck and it's some terrible accident. My grandfather dies of the stress. And then of course he goes into work in Hollywood himself. His name was Gordon Zoller. And uh, you know, he was not expected to live two years. He lived two, he was not supposed to live two weeks. He lived 35 years. Oh my gosh. And you know, you don't see a lot of guys in wheelchairs being pushed around Hollywood in the fifties and sixties. Right. And he did it. He got his big start coming up with a sewing show which is the last thing a daredevil like him you'd ever imagine. Then he worked with Ed Wood Jr. He, yeah. he produced the music on Plan 9 from Outer Space. <laughs> Considered the most beloved and worst cult sci-fi movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then he worked with Doris Day on a movie, my uncle, great uncle. You could not get any different between <laughs> Doris Day and Ed Wood Jr. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I loved his story. And, uh, you know, he really taught me that my mom was not exaggerating. I really did have Hollywood in my blood. And, you know, um, it, they were almost ghosts floating around. And I did try to do justice to them. I really did. That's, a, that's incredible. Yeah. So, um, you know, the reason I brought it up is because when I, when I was, so I, I'm 39. And when I was in my teens, I would, um, I'm obsessed with old Hollywood and vaudeville yeah. and, and Ed Wood too. I had went through a huge Ed Wood stage when I was around 17 or so, but um, I used to write letters to, he, he was a writer and, and director for Columbia and he started out, he was a sound man in Chicago and sounds like a very similar experience where the studios were, you know, everything was kind of blowing up with sound and they needed people to come out. So he, right. You know, he came out when he was, you know, early 20s and uh, started working with like Frank Capra um, early on doing sound. And then he eventually did a lot of like, uh, like two reelers, those short films for Columbia. So the book, that, the book that I have here is an old book from like the 1980s, but it has all the Columbia shorts. It's, a, you know, it's like an academic book. So I'm going to, I'm going to look up and see if your grandpa is in there and I'll send you some screenshots. Please do. Here is a, here's the book I wrote about my uncle. Uh, called Strange as it seems. And, I, and I, it connected me to my grandfather and my grandmother, you know, and for all my grandfather's accomplishments. And he worked with um, many of the early cowboy stars, Tom Mix, uh, Gene Autry, you know, before he became a broadcasting and a you know, major corporation, you know, um, unto himself, um, you know, Mickey Rooney, my grandmother, listen to, listen to my grandmother's life, you know, born uh, in um, basically the turn of the century, um, survived barely the uh, great San Francisco earthquake, mm. um, was the star witness in her father's murder trial in El Paso, Texas, basically has to keep the family together when they moved to Brooklyn and had no money and was subsidized by a Broadway actor uh, that was, you know, uh, her uncle comes out, you know, comes out west, her, you know, her son breaks his neck, uh, her brother, the, the Nat Ross, the director gets murdered, you know, that's just all in it, you know, this is one woman. You can't you make know? that, I mean, 
you would write that in a book and you would think someone was just like, oh, this is not believable. This she is too was, much. They called, yeah, they called Margaret <laughs> Thatcher the Iron Lady. My, she had nothing on my grandma. <laughs> you know, and she died, in, she died when I was a very little boy. Um, and she died of stomach cancer. And it kind of makes sense because there was so much trauma inflicted on her metabolism, you know? And yeah. she really a selfless, selfless person. And, um, you know, writing a book and knowing about this, you know, connected me to them. My mother urged me to leave my daily journalism job to write this biography. Mm-hmm. And I just took a flyer and did, you know, and I second guessed myself a gazillion times. And then I started really digging into the family history. And my mother thought I was a Frankenstein because I was digging up things she did not want me to do. <laughs> Affairs, other murders, you know, financial chicanery related to others. And so my mom actually stopped, my mom actually stopped talking to me for a while. Because, you know, I never bargained for you to do this. Yeah. In the end, she passed away in 2008. We made peace with it. And, uh, you know, my uncle, Gordon Zoller, uh, you know, he was, uh, I never could have thought I would write about him because I despised him when I was a child. Mm -hmm. He was a quadriplegic. He had uh, kind of deformed hands, a loud voice, kind of looked like a spider a bit lying on a bed. And, um, you know, he was tough on me. In a way, he was trying to see if I was tough enough to survive. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I would, felt like I was lucky to survive him. I was a pallbearer at his funeral, and he was, I wanted to escape from his memory. And then, as fate would have it, you know, now I, you know, sort of bow to the things he did. And it was incredible. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I've always been fascinated with hollywood like on on all levels of like the people who are successful and the people who not so much it's like the stories are are incredible like you you, you'll never find stories like that outside of of that town it's 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 wild so i yeah i don't meet a lot of people who are actually from there or grew up there so that's why i wanted to ask that's that's fascinating yeah i mean it's uh i i think the stories of the people on the margins are always more interesting You oh know, yeah, Ed Wood I, is is a fascinating character. Ed, Ed Wood, and, and you know, um, you know, Day of the Locust, one of my favorite books, Nathaniel West. Mm-hmm. You know, who knows what else? He died in a car accident coming back from Mexico. Who knows else? That, I mean, that is that, and what makes Sammy run are the two quintessential books about Hollywood, done 80, 90 years ago. Yeah, the still same feeling and sensibilities of Hollywood exist. Oh yeah, you know, Believe Land, run by you know younger people that uh want to change art you know commercialize art right so yeah fascinating stuff um well i wanted to ask about so you uh, you come from a journalism background um how were you always kind of interested in that like growing up was that your i mean it sounds like you probably loved writing or storytelling or, or investigating um early on but how did you end up getting into journalism I wish I could say I was like, you know, um, I, I remember when I, when I was like 11, uh, my mom and dad uh, split up for the first time. Um, and my mom was watching the Watergate hearings. And I remember asking my mom, what's going on? And she goes, some sick men, Democrats are trying to impeach our great president. president <laughs> <laughs> and, um, I wish I could say, I wish I could say, you know, uh, immediately Bert, uh, Woodward and Bernstein were my heroes. They later became, it wasn't the case. I always did. I mean, it was sort of like what Oscar Wilde said, how many times does something happen that happened to you before something occurs to you? And I always did really well in writing. And it wasn't until high school, you know, a teacher said, you know what, you should consider this, you know, you have, you know, there's something there, you know, and, um, you know, th- that's what got me going. And then I went to USC. They had an excellent journalism school. I fell in love with it. I, it just felt the most natural thing for me to do. I left being a business major. My dad was mighty unpleased. But I had to follow what I, you know, what, what just excited me. And I remember I had this Associated Press professor. And one time he says, forget about your reading in the books. We're having a press conference. I'm the mayor. I'm resigning. Okay. Who's going to ask me questions that's going to get to the truth of the matter? Because that's what, he, that's what I was told. You know, you don't serve your reader. You don't serve your biases. The truth is, your, the, truth is, is the ultimate arbiter of what you do. And after that, I was hooked. 
I mean, I, I, journalism was just a perfect melding of my annoying, annoying personality, my curiosity, and my writing. You know, I later decided, being big-eyed, you know, I, I'll save the writing for later, and I wanted to be a CIA uh, analyst or a State Department Foreign Service officer because in the mid 80s, there was a great fear of nuclear apocalypse as the Cold War went into another phase. Mm -hmm. So I eventually went to grad school and like any industry I touch, it seems to die because I go back there, and <laughs> I'm applying to the CIA and other places, getting ready to take, you know, gonna take the test and all that. And then Gorbachev comes on the scene and it's like, okay, massive nuclear <laughs> weapons reductions. And then I finally just said, that's it. I'm just gonna be a writer. I'm just gonna do the natural thing. And I came back and I got lucky at a job at a weekly called the LA Business Journal. And I worked my way up. I got to cover City Hall. I went to other papers. And I'll tell you, it just, I always felt like stories fell in my lap. Like I was the beneficiary of some cosmic, you know, benevolence. Mm -hmm. And people would tell me secrets, send me documents, you know, and I just wondered, you know, how long this run was gonna last. And when I got to be an author, that I feel like God was saying, okay, now I'm going to humble you, boy. You know? <laughs> and, you know, I mean, the first book about my uncle, I thought I had a deal with St. Martin's that fell through, went through trials and tribulations, you know, my smog book eventually got picked up by a big publisher, but it's not yeah. easy. You yeah. know, there's a book being published. There's like 500, 600 books published a day, mm -hmm. you know, because of self-publishing and other factors, the market is flooded. Mm -hmm. You know, how do you make yours to stand out? So, you know, I, it's I, the frustrations I never felt in journalism and also the early gratification. You write a story and you see it the next day and your, your name is in a newsstand. It's very different being an author. The level of, of, the level of, of luck and skill and craft is, you know, just it's quantumly different. Yeah, that's why I hear that time and again. I mean, it's just, it is a lot of like, it's just hard work that may, that may not like, I wouldn't say it pays off because I, I guess like the, the doing it is, is payoff enough, but, but getting someone to read it and to, you know, have it reach a, a big audience. It's a, it's a huge, um, a lot of it's out of, out of a writer's control, but um, yeah. I mean, I mean, some of the books today that they consider the prestige reads, I'm just shaking my head. I know. Yeah. I mean, they're covering a great subject. They have a lot of ability, but in the telling and your investment in the characters, it's absent, you know, and I don't want to, I mean, you know, I, I, I don't think this is all, all writers are envious, you know, yeah. but I don't think that's the case. And it does make you realize there's tastemakers and most of them are in New York and they decide mm -hmm. what's going to be the series and they decide what's going to get the massive New York times exposure. But you know what? I, I just have to be happy doing what I'm doing, producing a good body of work only weird little me could do. Mm -hmm. So I, I've made peace of that. You know, I really have. And um, you know, I guess the I guess the judgment will be in the wash someday. And, yeah. But it's you know um, there is a, a saying in Buddhism, and I'm I'm very much a very Eastern influenced Christian, and it says not for me, not everything mm -hmm. for you in this life is is. Not, you, you do not deserve everything in this life. You know, there's, yeah. there, it's almost, almost like egalitarianism. We have to spread out the happiness. Yeah, and, and I like is, that, yeah. Is. Otherwise, you know, you can be a glutton. And, you know, I've had some, you know, attention on me. And fame is like cocaine that rapes through my colleagues. <laughs> Once, I mean, it, it, it brings out the worst in you. And it makes you, it makes you selfish. You know, and it also blinds you to who you are. And it, it, it's dangerous. I've seen friends go on to become very successful, win major awards, and they're exactly the same. And they would never bring up any of that. And I've met other people that have had minor success, and that's all they can talk about. You know? Mm, yeah. So it, it's a tricky thing when somebody goes, they're good, you should listen to them. Right. Yeah. No, that's fascinating. I mean, like, um, I love, I mean, I, I stumbled upon Arroyo just because, I, I'm a huge fan of rare bird books. Right. And so I'm always kind of keeping an eye out. And I like, I mean, they just do an incredible job at, at picking quality books to publish. Um, and for, for such a small outfit, they really just put out such a, an incredible amount of, uh, yeah, high quality work on, on all levels. So 
Um, I, I read that, I read yours and I, I mean, I loved it and it was just, you know, definitely is finding an audience. I mean, I see it, it, it it's gained some traction and, and um, you know, like you said, it was a you know, LA Times bestseller and that's, that's incredible. I'm curious about the process for, I mean, so I read that article, you sent me an article that you wrote today yeah. um, about you as a child and, and, and different things. So I'm going to put a link to that in the, uh, in the podcast description. I want our, our viewers to, or uh, our listeners to, to read that, but it talks a bit about how you kind of came to writing the novel. Um, I'm curious about, maybe you could just like briefly talk about that. And, and I, I am interested about your process. I know we did that in the print interview, uh, your process for writing sure. the book itself, but I'd like to hear that again, if you, if you don't mind. For sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I, uh, I, I, in 2004, while I was working on my first books, I did a freelance story. You know, once you get journalism, you know, in your system, it's hard to get out. It's like the blood disease that won't, you know, that won't abate. Thank God for that. And um, I did a story about the Colorado Street Bridge, which is, which is the heart of the story. And I found this little coffee table reference about three people dying in an accident that the supposedly perfect bridge uh, produced. And I got really kind of angry that these men had been forgotten and they were reduced to a footnote. And, you know, um, while everybody glorifies the bridge and makes money off the bridge, and I wrote an article about it in Pasadena Weekly, you know, and you know, that's what you do as a journalist. You write a story and you move on, you focus on your other projects. And people liked it, they identified with it. I don't know why. And eventually I was getting calls. I got a call from a British reality TV psychic <laughs> named Lisa Williams. She looked a bit like Sharon Osbourne. And okay. she was really not a very competent psychic because she brought me down on the Arroyo Seco if she would have read my article, she could have done better. She had me touch the columns. She goes, I'm thinking of the name Fred. Was that one of the people that died? Nope. What is a joke? No. And, and she, you can just see her getting more dejected. I'm not sure what their air. She was perfectly nice. I'm flattered she asked me. Then a couple documentary makers came into town, quote unquote documentary makers, and they were going to do a project about the bridge but they wanted to focus all on the paranormal and the supernatural. I'm going, don't you think the origin story of the bridge is interesting enough? Mm. This bridge that made history around the world, you know, lauded in this marquee small town. It's a bridge that curbs. It's got, you know, suicide attached. It's got, you know, famous people involved. Nope, they just want to do about ghosts. <laughs> they, they eventually get some investment money around town, close down the streets to film, and in the middle of the night, they split. They split oh. down. With oh other people. And, and I had a contract with them. I, um, over the years, that, uh, that story, those experiences fermented in my mind. And, you know, I wanted to write a first novel. And I remember the first lesson of journalism, which is write about what you know, at least initially. I grew up in Pasadena. I partied under that bridge as a teenager. I had a car accident under, under that bridge, you know, um, where I got out of the car and I was looking at the broken taillight, the hanging, you know, the chrome, you know, crumpled sideways. And I looked up and I swear the bridge with these beautiful great bunch lamps, I felt like it was staring down at me, mm. like this queen that knew we'd rendezvous later. And when I just thought about doing a novel, that was the natural, natural story for me, you know? And I, I have a connection to dogs. I like sarcasm, irony, escapism. You know, I like being a little different within a genre. And, and so, you know, about 2016, my uh, very elderly father, I was kind of a whoops, much younger baby. Uh, I started working on it and it wasn't easy. You know, I mean, the, I probably overcomplicated the novels it is. I overcomplicated it five times worse. <laughs> and it took me eight drafts, you know, to get it right. And by the time I was like doing the final checks, I had a notepad with all the loose ends I had to tie up. Mm. It was like ran three or four pages. You know, <laughs> oh. I felt like it was a punch list on a spec house. You wow. know, and um, but you know that nothing felt better than than just seeing it done, knowing it held together. You know, I didn't know how people would react. I mean, historical novels I realized fit into a rather studgy set of guardrails, where you know you're not supposed to talk about famous people of the era. You're not supposed to make it funny. 
you're certainly not supposed to have reincarnation or a dog that's sometimes <laughs> clairvoyant and always annoying in it. But I want to do that. What is the say? What is the point of doing something somebody else's? It's like my favorite bands, the Beatles, Squeeze, Led Zeppelin. I can't stand it when somebody covers their songs yeah. and just tries to imitate them. Mm-hmm. No, you put your own interpretation on that. And so I did that and overwhelm, you know, majority have gotten very good reception. Some people are a little confused about the reincarnation, but the more starchy people on the more affluent side of Pasadena, they did not like my book. <laughs> really? They thought I was a smart ass and I <laughs> class. And they, uh, it, they thought it was too cute and smarmy, you know? And at first I was like, I was sort of deflated, but then I met somebody who really liked the book and they go, no, 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 you're thinking about it all wrong. You know, you, you know you've made points that have somehow bothered them in a place where they know what you're saying is true. Because, you know, like so many great places and institutions, a lot of it is built on myth that we've told ourselves as fact. You know, mm-hmm. we're all humans, but in Pasadena, which is a excellent small town, there is a sense of superiority and virtuousness, you know, that if you pull off a layer, uh, vanishes. And, you know, I felt like being a hometown boy who wants to make it proud, but I also want to tell the truth. Mm-hmm. So that's why in my book, I have Upton Sinclair in it. Upton right. Sinclair is this famous journalism, wrote the jungle, pulled to oh, yeah. future gubernatorial candidate in California, an eccentric, but you know, you needed to have somebody who was there to hear the truth about Pasadena and the bridge, the bridge people would have you think, formed like out of immaculate conception mm-hmm. but in reality there was blood there was death there were blown deadlines there was terrible infighting there were change of plans that created you know feuds where this famous designer of it refused to come out to the grand opening he was boycotting pasadena you know that is more interesting than ghost and supernatural that might have been a byproduct of the bad blood around it so you know to make your to answer your question you know, my, my dad passed away. That definitely set me back. I was dealing with the loss and family members and selling his house. And, um, you know, in a way, it got me thinking more about how to make the book more magical, how to grip people hope. You know, I, I do believe we're all immortal. And, you know, the idea of the bridge is called a suicide bridge. I, I wanted to, I wanted to explain. It wasn't because of the bridge and its location and its height. It was because of, of the bad energy it absorbed from people mm-hmm. building it, you know, and, and some deceptions about it. And so, you know, having, dealing with that, thinking about that actually made the book better. It really did, you know, but it's not easy going from journalism. It's the first bit of fiction I've ever written in my life. And, you know, I decided just to go in whole hog, whole hog. What's the point of writing something basic? Oh, you know, yeah, I, yeah. I, I had to make it intricate. So. Well, that's what, what struck me. Like when I, when I read it, um, it just, I like historical fiction, yeah. but, but I, I found like, I had never read anything quite like this before. It just, it pulled from so many different things and it was, it was like a really enjoyable read. Like I could read it. Um, like there's a lot of, I don't want to say it was dense, but there's so much information in it, but, it, but it read fast for me. Yeah. It read really fast, which is not typical. So I was kind of, um, a bit blown away, and I really, I really loved it. I'm like, man, this is such a unique book. I, I got to talk to this guy. I uh, well, thank you. I went back after I published it and have polished it and polished it and fixed a few things. One of the mistakes I made is I married off uh, Lucretia Garfield, who was the widow of James A. Garfield. I married her off to uh, uh, McKinley. I, I conflated my dead president club. So, <laughs> and I realized that coming out of Lucretia Garfield's real house in South Pasadena. So I fixed that many other things. You know, I feel like, you know, um, I'm a perfectionist and I had to make it right because this story meant so much to me. You know, when I lost my dad and there's been a lot of loss in my life, lost my dog, you know, and they're always going to live on in some way, you know, in in this story. And, you know, in 2016, 2007, it it was still a pretty dark time Mm -hmm. in America and the world. DC and, you know, climate change and opioids. And I wanted to give people an escape, a giggle, and also to remember the promise of America, Mm -hmm. which is a very bright, you know, a very bright, you know, 
principle. And, you know, um, the, the progressive age, electricity was coming on, cars, concrete, food was getting safer generally, uh, inventions were, were being lauded. You know, um, it, it, was, we, it was the collision between, you know, more pastoral, slow American and, and civilization really cranking up. But in that little window of daylight, God, there was, there was joy. And Pasadena had so many wonderments. Well, I mean, I do wish I had a time machine to go back. You know? <laughs> because, you know, you could start your day riding ostriches, have a picnic in Bush Gardens, yeah. go up to Mount Low, and then stop, you know, come back at night for a walk down Colorado Street, you yeah. know, which is very sophisticated. You know, is, it's, I mean, if you're romantic, you know, like me, what's not to love? I love it. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's such a good book. And so when I was, um, I go to Sundance every year cause I, I you know, I live in Utah. So yeah. it was so cool. I went to a book event at the little, little tiny bookstore called Dolly's bookstore. Um, great place up in park city, Utah. And they had, a um, like they had your book faced out on one of the main shelves there. So I was so, I was just so excited to see that like in my home, my hometown. So um, I'm hope, hoping a lot of people get to read it. Uh, one you thing, know, I'll go ahead. I was, I was sorry to interrupt. I no, mean, no, no. You do have to, I think I'm learning. Nonfiction, you know, you can be creative, but you are working with a set universe of facts. Right. You know, um, with, with fiction, it's, you just have to be ready to have a more uh, black or white response to it. It's not going to be everybody's cup of tea. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, a, you know, there's historical fiction writers that you know have spent years of the craft i'm an amateur coming in here trying to do something different and you have to be okay with people not liking it yeah. you know i would i mean i i don't like gratuitous you know cheap shots but i would like to hear why why people didn't like it so i could try to learn not mm -hmm. to please them in the future but that's the thing about learning just like you know about writing like musicianship you could always improve to your last breath Mm -hmm. I, you know, I really believe that. And so if I don't, get, if I'm not getting better, I feel, I feel guilty. Yeah. Well, I hope you don't go, to, go down the rabbit hole looking at Amazon reviews because I was, I was talking to one person how they'll have like horrible reviews, but it has nothing to do with the book. It's just talking about that the shipping was late. <laughs> so it like brings down the author rating because of that. <laughs> I know. You're, yeah. Like your mother told you, never argue with a fool or a drunk or to be, or an Amazon. <laughs> or Amazon. <laughs> Um, you know, there's situations where people have got uh, the Twitter crowd upset with them. And, you know, in today's vicious, dehumanizing, objectifying atmosphere, they will go chase that person on Amazon, get a hundred of their friends to give them one star reviews, having never read the book, just because they don't like something they said so. or they did unrelated to the work. And I think that is so cruel. How would you yeah. like to done to you? That's horrible. Yeah. I don't know if people can like feel okay about, you know, ruining someone's livelihood. Yeah. I mean, social media has, has greatly uh, uh, widened the chasm in America. Mm -hmm. You know, I still believe if you got people together who voted for Trump or voted for Biden and you sat them down at the picnic table, you know what? And you said, let's not talk about politics. They're going to be laughing and exchanging numbers before the end of that encounter. Oh yeah, totally. I mean, I, I, when I, I'm online and I'm like, where, where are these people? Like, cause when I meet people for the most part, you, yeah, you can, you can talk with anyone one-on-one, yeah. uh, -on -one, everyone, not everyone, but you can, there's a lot more good than bad when I see a one-on-one -on -one conversation in person. But yeah. when you have that veil of anonymity online or not a direct reaction, people get puffed up and, and they take, out something else on, on, on a writer or anyone else. And it, it's, sure. it can be really destructive. I think it actually, the social dislocation, alienation, I do believe it started with the car. Mm. And think about it, people taking public transit, walking, bicycle. There is some degree of cooperation and there is on driving on freeways, but it's easier just to be the person you never want to be and that your 17 year old <laughs> self would, would, would be repulsed by, you know, driving and, and, and it does, it does, it, it, you know, it accelerates the narcissism and uh, feelings of anxiety. And I think Twitter just picked up where the car left off. <laughs> you know? I mean, it's, I, you know, if I, if I didn't have to do it, 
for trying to be having a footprint as an author, I would quit all the right. social media, all everything. I don't think it helps your reading. I don't think it helps your humanity. It's it's just kind of like high school gossipy. Yeah. You know? No, I I totally agree. I mean, I I use it. It's kind of like a, a means to an end. And I finally just took a took the apps off my phone because yep. I feel like it was destroying my um my attention span. You know. And it was just, it was more challenging, especially at the beginning of the pandemic. I feel like I was on my phone a lot more, yeah. um, just kind of doing nothing. And I just had a hard time focusing on, you know, stuff I actually like to do. I'm like, why, what is going on? Yeah, and I, and it's people, that. Yeah, and people just walk constantly looking at this. <laughs> and I, you know, I, I think there's really, there, there's the real estate for a really good sarcastic alien invasion movie. You know, they're coming, they're coming through a wormhole and, and they're prepared and they're like me, they're like team seal, uh, uh, seal team six of, of aliens. And, and, and they come down, they go, Oh my God, it's so easy. You know, I mean, nobody's paying attention. And somebody goes on Twitter. I think there's aliens here. And all of a sudden it becomes fake news, fake aliens. And the aliens are just going, Oh my God, we're going to take this mountain and nobody's going to know. I love it. I love it. I have a picture, uh, a piece of like artwork in my classroom and it has, a bunch of uh like looks like zombies from the walking dead or whatever and they're all just looking down walking straight right and it's like i mean it's like a it's just such a great great image and it's not too far off from you know <laughs> our reality right now it's scary right. i know we i know we need a national parent you know <laughs> I, mean, I, I love monty python and the holy grail that's still yeah. one of my favorite movies and at one point you know they're kneeling to god and he comes through the clouds and he goes, my God, get on your feet. You know, <laughs> and, and I, you know, we, I think, I just wish there were no Twitter Sundays or, you know, we just started realizing it, you know, in a way we're getting, the game is rigged. It's just not the way a certain person in the White House says, it is rigged to make you focus on what they're selling, you know, and like, um, you know, you, you look at a watch one minute and the next second it's on everywhere across your feeds. Mm -hmm. realize we're being manipulated. Oh, yeah. We have a beautiful world out there. Get your head off the phone. <laughs> so true. So true. Anyway, sorry uh, for being a cranky grandpa. No, I mean, like, I, I, like, I feel the same way, but I, but I, like, I have to direct that back to myself because I slip into it, you know, just, just know. as easily. So I have to be, be cautious. I always so get irritated yeah. at my students and then I'm like I can be just as bad so I needed to step back and worry about me that's I hear you I mean I feel like you know even if you like uh, if you go back and look at the roots of Scientology mm -hmm. L. Ron Hubbard did have some really prescient insights about how the mind works uh -huh. he just decided to make it a money-making enterprise. I'm sorry, I mean, he did say the quickest way to make a million dollars in Los Angeles is start a religion. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, uh, I feel like the same way, you know, with Facebook and Twitter and others, they found there was a need to connect socially, but they didn't realize they're tapping into some receptor in our brain that makes us like junkies, you know, and mm. share junkies and all that. And, you know, when my book's coming out, it's like, oh, I got 300 shares and all that what have i achieved right. really i mean what have i what have i achieved you know for my own ego satisfaction so i, I don't know if they even re i don't think mark zuckerberg zuckerberg he wasn't a psychology major and it's something that was quite fragile in the human experience of today which is we're all insecure mm -hmm. yeah absolutely yeah so so interesting um Okay, what, one last question for you. This has been a great conversation. Uh, so you mentioned, um, and I don't know how much you can talk about it, but you have a new book coming out in March, along yeah. with the, the, the paperback of Arroyo. Yep. Um, anything you can tell us about, about the new book? I know it's a few months off, but I'm yeah, it's, to hear. Um, yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's, um, uh, this is a book called The Darkest Glare. And it's a revision and rewrite and reimagining of a book I actually released in 2012, rushing it out. Um, I, I, I never was happy with the quality of it, with uh, the organization, the tension of it. And so when I probably should have been doing Arroyo, I went back and, you know, promoting Arroyo, I went back and, and, and dug into my files, thought how to make it better, did a lot of reading of true crime. And... Um, it's a story about Los Angeles and its lust for land. 
and um, you know whether you can ever really know anybody, and um, how ambition, reckless ambition, often will lead to somebody being killed. You know, if you come across the wrong individual, and in this case, you know, the the story centers around the execution on a rainy night of a dishonest but charming businessman uh, by a man who was creating a murder-for-profit corporation, an honest-to-good murder-for-profit corporation. It really does have elements, though, of uh, it resonates a lot today's angry population where people feel let down and they're taking things into their own hands. Well, that was the killer at the heart of this story. And it evolved from it, it, uh, one of the heroes of the story was a source of mine when I was an investigative reporter and he told me walking down Hollywood Boulevard one day, did you know I had a double murderer chasing me? And it's like, yeah, whatever. You're just being a BSer. You don't need to inflate your importance to me. And it was all true. And he only knew about 10% of the story. And so, you know, it is, it, it's a true crime story that you'd expect the Coen brothers yeah. to have turned into a film with, you know, um, um, for example, it took almost, 10 times for the killers to get their man. Mm -hmm. He wasn't home. Uh, there was a incident near his house. Um, you know, uh, he couldn't be baited out the front door. You know, and they tried everything but like releasing a cobra in his backyard to get him to emerge. And, um, you know, it's, um, it, you can see um, in it, you know, um, people that uh, think taking shortcuts will make them happy when really, in this case, taking shortcuts to success in the real estate world led to some dangerous people on, on a deck and then coming after you. Los Angeles had a record high murder rate in 1979. It's really, there's echoes of today are so similar. And, you know, um, th there's humor in the book. There's heartache in the book. I mean, in what in part of it, you know, the widow of the man who was killed, it, it, uh, the the place where the the killing happens is so gory they can't even get a cleaning company to come. Oh. She has to go clean up the remains of her husband's brains off the wall. Oh. Poor woman, right? And um, the the other thing I'll just mention is, you know, some events in life have a momentum so great nothing will change its trajectory. And in this case numerous people knew of a assassination attempt in the works. It could not be stopped. Um, you know, even famous lawyers, including one on the John, on the OJ Simpson case, um, uh, said, you know what, you have, um, you know, you, it, it's probably not true. And even uh, you have no moral responsibility to get in the way between this and a, and a killing. You know, it was, it was really uh, a very disconcerting, um, you know, revelation about the law and uh, knowing these things happen, they're just not in the movies, you know, and most, actually many murders don't get solved. This one did not get solved for a long time. And as a result, my uh, protagonist lives in disguise, has an Israeli mercenary guarding him, watches his family fall apart, and barely, you know, survives an encounter at the La Brea Tar Pits. It was really, I mean, it's, I've never read a true crime, I've never seen a true crime story you know, that combines both hilarity and heartlessness like this. I love it. Sounds right up my alley. Yeah, definitely. I can't wait to read it um, when it comes out. And I love, I mean, like, yeah, just you talking about it, it sounds like, you know, very, very different from Arroyo, but you're pulling in a lot of stuff that, you know, is just not typically done and, and, it, and it works. So I, I can't wait to read it. You know, the thank you. You know, the freeways that we think are so amazing, unless it's rush hour here, they're actually the perfect conduit for murder, if you think about it. And in uh, this case, the three principles all collided, brought, brought, they collided thanks to freeways. And when the killing happened, you know, it was take the, you know, 10 freeway to the 210, to the 134, to the 101, you know, and, you know, if you want to get away after killing somebody, you know, the best way is to just jump back on an on-ramp yeah. go back, you know, and that <laughs> became their MO, you know, and so you have to be careful about what you draw into your world, because LA's mobility will, you know, put them on your doorstep, and wow. uh, anyway. I um, can't wait, yeah, I can't I wait. I wanted to make it, yeah, I really wanted to make it about the different parts of Los Angeles, 
you know, how sometimes it's oil and water. And what one character comes from the San Fernando Valley, working class. The other is sort of a Beverly Hills brat. Mm -hmm. and, the, and the other person comes from the, comes from the East and he's really good at killing and not getting, getting caught and hiding. He's a, was a contractor and nobody thought a contractor could be a killer. Mm -hmm. But if you've got a license and tools, you know, and respectability, you know, it's going to seem unlikely that you were involved with something this gross. Right. You've gone away with it many times. Oh, wow. Fascinating. Yeah. Um, so that comes out in March on Rare Bird, right? It comes out in March. And let me just also say, coward that I am, I would not have written this unless the principal bad guys were dead. <laughs> and, um, because, you know, they were the sort of guys that remembered. Yeah. Well... <laughs> <laughs> That's scary, but yeah, I can't. I can't wait to read it. That's gonna be. That's gonna be great when it comes out. I'll. I'll keep an eye out for it for sure. Yeah, please. Do. Thank <laughs> you. Well, uh, Chip, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. And um, I'm gonna. I'm gonna look up your grandpa, and I think I might. I have a lot of friends who researched that time period in Columbia Studios, yeah. in particular. So I'm gonna. I'm gonna ask around and see if I have anything, and I'll send it your way. But um, yeah, please. this is. A, this yeah, is a perfect. really fun conversation. I know we could talk forever. You oh, know, yeah. <laughs> Columbia Studios, I don't think even exists anymore, but at one time it was a major, major studio. Yeah. And, um, my, my grandfather, um, actually, my, after he died, my grandmother got embroiled in a lawsuit against Columbia uh, Pictures because they were transitioning from film to TV. Right. And there was nothing in the contracts during film saying, oh, you can re re reuse the music in a different media. Yeah. And um, of course they didn't win the case. But you know, when you're up, when you're between two technologies, somebody gets the shaft. That's so I mean, that's so interesting because like that same guy I was telling you about, he that exact thing happened to him. So he directed a lot yeah. of yeah, short films. He did a lot of three stooges shorts. And yeah. um you know, you just get paid one and done for doing yep. it because like no one for, foresaw television nope. um, and they were, and they were out. So yeah, that's across the board. Those poor, <laughs> those yeah. poor it, folks had no shot. Like, just remember Las Vegas, you know, just think of La Hollywood as Las Vegas. The house always wins. Oh, the totally. Yeah. yeah. But you know, still it's, it, you're producing art, they're showcasing it. So, you know, I have yeah. a lot of questions of my grandfather when I meet him. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. Great. Well, um, yeah, I will keep in touch and I can't read a, wait to read the new one and um, I'll send you a link when this podcast is ready to go. But this was, this was a fun one. So thanks for taking the time. Thank you. And by the way, all my author friends love you. Think you have a great thing going. So please oh, keep great. it up. Get some corporate sponsorship. I, <laughs> well, thank you. Dog, bring in a dog act, but keep it up because what you're doing is important. Thank you. I appreciate that. I mean, I the people you've put me in contact with. Well, yeah, Bill Loving recently. I mean, I loved his book and had a great time um, doing a quick interview with him. So yeah, thank you so much. I, I definitely plan on keeping this keeping this going. Keeping the pipe on going. All yeah. right, you, you keep the faith. Stay safe and uh, with your being a teacher. And yeah, thank you. Writer and you know uh, you're doing something good. So thank you. I appreciate that. That means a lot. Yeah. All right, okay. man. God bless. Okay. You too. Okay. Have a good one. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.